Hello and welcome to Talking New Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, Uretina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's podcast, it's time to set our focus on tumours. Professor Heinrich Heimann of Royal Liverpool University Hospital and Professor Jens Kilgard of Copenhagen University Hospital will chair a conversation about metastatic disease in uveal melanoma and clinical trials of a newly approved drug in Europe, Tibentifusp. They're joined by Dr. Joseph Sacco of University of Liverpool and the Clatterbridge Cancer Centre and Dr. Meta Bagger from Copenhagen University Hospital. First, though, just a heads up that the Retina Yours Committee will be hosting a webinar on OCT and geography on March 14th. It's going to be a fantastic exploration of the possibilities with this relatively new imaging technology. An international faculty will take us through interpretation of images in a normal retina, wide field applications, and a range of disease states like AMD, diabetic retinopathy, vascular disorders, uveitis, and inherited retinal diseases. So don't miss it. Interpretation of OCTA from Fundamentals to Diseases is a webinar hosted by the Uretina Yours Committee on March 14th at 8pm Central European Time. Register on uretina.org. Okay, it's time now to hand over to our chairs for the scientific discussion. Please welcome Professors Heinrich Hyman and Jens Kilgard. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome. Looking forward to this discussion. Uh, Heinrich, over to you. Thank you, Jonathan. In 1882, Ernst Fuchs was the first one to describe a sarcoma of the uveal tract, which we know as a uveal melanoma. He was not only an extremely talented clinician in a very busy practice, he also was a pathologist and very soon realized that this disease can spread to the liver and would kill about 20% of his patients. Now, with all the incredible advances in medicine we've seen, not much has changed about these 20% over 100 years until last week, when a drug called Apentafusp was licensed by the European Medical Agency. With me to discuss this exciting new development here are my co-chair Jens Volker Kielgaard from Copenhagen Ocular Oncology Service, Mette Bagger, who's done a lot of work in this in the science um, for the disease, and Joe Sacco, who is a medical oncologist looking after patients with metastatic disease. Jens, the Danish National Health Service is really, really famous for its fantastic statistics. So best data really we have in diseases of the eye come from Denmark. So I think you're the best one to really set the scene about metastatic disease in uveal melanoma. How frequent is it? Thank you, Heinrich. Yeah, the uveal melanoma uh, is a rare disease and commonly has been thought to be about three to six cases per million. Uh, but now it seems there's an incidence increase. So now in Denmark, we actually have 12 new cases per million inhabitants in Denmark. And that's not so good because uveal melanoma is one of the deadliest subtypes of melanoma we have. Why is it still so deadly? Is it only the liver or can it go anywhere? Yeah, we do see in our registers that the main uh, target organ is the liver, but it can also uh, do outside of the liver and it can be a combination of liver and other organs. But the major organ is the liver. We don't know why it's so deadly. Uh, we think it has something to do with the mutational burden within the uveal melanoma. So in contrast to the cutaneous melanoma, where we have dozens of mutations, 
In humoral melanoma, we often only have two, an uh, initiator gene and a driver gene, and there may be a third mutation further down in the BRAF chain, but basically the mutational burden is very low. So Ernst Fuchs already described in, in his series, 20% would die, and basically this is the latest statistics from America as well, but we always hear that 50% actually develop metastatic disease. Can you comment on that? What, why is that difference? Yeah, it depends on how long you're going to observe the patients because we see metastasis develop very early and there seems to be several peaks within the metastatic disease development. But you can also in uvular melanoma see metastasis developing up to 42 years after the primary tumor has been removed. And this has been a bit puzzling, but if we have great registers and you follow the patient long enough, there are several big cohort studies showing that the disease-specific deaths are about 50%, but after 15 to 20 years, and only very few registers are able to follow patients for that long time. So if I'm a general ophthalmologist in daily practice and have a patient has been treated successfully 10 years ago, um, do I still need to worry or, or can I reassure the patient that's basically it? You, you, you don't need to worry about it anymore. No, no, you cannot reassure anybody. You need to follow the patient, unfortunately. This is not something the, the hospital administrators want to hear, but basically these patients are at risk many, many years and we can at present not tell who of the high-risk patients will die from the metastatic disease and who will survive. But we have a good clue in which to follow and which not to follow. That leads me to the risk factors matter. You've done a lot of research in it. So again, I'm a general ophthalmologist with patients with uvular melanoma coming from a clinic, been treated. What do I have to look out for? Who's at risk really for developing this disease? Uh, yes, thank you, Heinrich. Since uh, 2009, we have actually uh, tested these patients genetically uh, because we have, uh, or it is uh, known that that the genetic factors are very important um, in which patients are at risk for metastatic disease. So, uh, like Jens said, it's a, a tumor with a quite a low mutation burden. So we see. Um, frequent um, genetic alterations in monosomy 3 and uh, chromosome 8Q. Uh, and those are the two uh, chromosomes that we have been tested at, uh, uh, that we are testing here at the uh, Resuspitalo. And so we're actually able to identify these high-risk patients that we follow and that should uh, be continued uh, to be followed. And how is this test performed? Is it a blood test or a scan or, or how do you get to the result? No, I mean, um, two-thirds of the patients are uh, actually uh, treated with a routinium um, brachytherapy. So, so we have to take an intraocular biopsy in order to obtain tissue for uh, genetic testing. So um, what um, my research has been concerned about is how we can obtain this tissue. Is it uh, safe for the eye? And, uh, and the patient, and uh, can we uh, get enough tissue for genetic testing? Um, and we have uh, shown that that by using um, a transretral retinal choroidal biopsy technique, that we can actually get sufficient uh, genetic tissue. So you do need tissue for it, either if you have enucleation or surgery or a biopsy, but it, it won't work without any tissue. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. There's different techniques that you can use uh, in order to uh, test uh, for genetic alterations. 
So uh, you can uh, look at the copy number variation of the chromosomes uh, with either MLPA or FISH. Uh, and uh, you can also um, use uh, gene expression profiling where you look at which genes are actually uh, expressed. Also, uh, you can uh, use uh, sequencing and look uh, at the genetic mutations, specific genetic mutations. So there's, uh, there's a lot of different techniques that you can use in order to identify these uh, risk groups. But you are right, Heinrich. It is always tissue from the tumor. It's never from the blood, which is a germline mutation. So we are talking somatic mutations, tumor mutations. Thank you for coming in there, Jens. I have two more questions regarding this. I mean, we do have a little bit like Pepsi and Coca-Cola, uh, the Monosomy 3 and the GFAP. And uh, can you comment a bit on that? One is more in Europe, one is more in America. We might have listeners from both continents. Um, what's the scene there? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's describing the same uh, groups. So so while we look uh, here more in Europe, we look at the copy number uh, very, uh, alterations of the chromosomes, then the gene expression uh, patterns are located at the same chromosomes. So it is actually describing uh, the same genetic changes. It's just you either look at the, the chromosome uh, copy number or you look at the genes expressed with mRNA. And, and Jens raised the point of liquid biopsy. That's a buzzword we hear a lot at, at conferences. Where are we with that? Can we get it next year? What's your opinion on that? I mean, uh, my, uh, my personal opinion is that we are not quite there yet. There has been some interesting studies that have identified it uh, both uh, in the blood and in there was an abstract recently who identified it in the uh, vitreous uh, or in the aqueous um, humor. Uh, however, the, the main uh, issue is that the sensitivity is very low. And there's a lot of patients where we are not able to detect it yet, even though the techniques has uh, improved dramatically over the last uh, couple of years. So it won't really be an, a useful method as long as we are not able to detect it more uh, with a higher sensitivity. And the last question regarding risk factors. Let's say I don't have any tissue. Are there any clinical risk factor that I can tell the patient you have a higher risk um, in this? There's, of course, the, the HACC staging system that is based primarily on the tumor size and also if the tumor is um, involved in with the ciliary body or is uh, grown through the sclera. So that will be the clinical risk factors that you will uh, you will look out for. Okay, so before we go to the real oncologist here, a last question mm -hmm. regarding the ophthalmology oncologist. Uh, is there anything we can do to prevent metastatic disease at this stage as ophthalmologists? Yeah, I think that uh, it, we know that smaller tumors do survive better. And from the Danish National Cohort Study, we actually see that uh, if we can find the tumors early, there's a tendency that the background population has the same mortality as the small tumors. Basically, so if you find the tumors early, treat it. If you find them too late, well, the, uh, they have already done metastasis to the system and we just have to wait for the outcome.
Well, thank you very much. Joe, over to you now. You're an oncologist working with these patients once they develop symptoms or picked up by screening. Um, can you set the scene for us? Uh, what's the sort of state-of-the-art treatment? How are they picked up? What are the options for treatment? Uh, thanks, Heinrich. Um, so uh, historically, the treatment options haven't been very good. And importantly, it has also not been standardized from country to country. There hasn't really been a standard of care. And this is partly because it's such a rare disease that large clinical trials have been impossible or very, very infrequent. And also probably at least partly due to a lack of response in the tumor type. In terms of how it's picked up, in times in the past, this used to be predominantly through symptoms. And at that point, patients were often very unwell in themselves, preventing treatment. Now, with use of surveillance, early detection means that patients are often very well and asymptomatic for the disease, allowing for better treatment options. We usually, on, on screening patients, um, look first of all at whether we can operate on the, where, on the liver metastases, which is where they first occur. So in about 10 to 15% of patients, there are oligometastatic uh, deposits that can be removed by surgery. Um, and this is only when we can achieve an R0 resection, that is resection uh, with clear microscopic margins. On other occasions, we might use ablation with isolated metastases, again, with the same sort of approach to debulk and to, to uh, gain a progression-free interval. Unfortunately, this doesn't cure the cancer. It merely gives a period of time before that further metastases occur. And occasionally we see a pattern of uh, disease where these metastases occur infrequently over time, and it can be many years between the occurrence of tumors and resections, etc. Another approach that is used is liver-directed therapy, where we try to actually uh, use more general approaches within the liver, uh, but again, liver only. And that's because we know that the disease often persists only in the, in the liver for a period of time. So this includes chemoembolization, immunoembolization, gland embolization, as well as um, isolated hepatic perfusion and uh, percutaneous hepatic perfusion with melphalan, uh, so-called DELCAT. And some of these treatments have been associated with quite good outcomes, particularly DELCAT, which in its original phase three study showed uh, an improvement in hepatic progression-free survival. It didn't improve overall survival, um, partly because of a crossover design. This is a very complicated procedure and, and it still remains um, used in, in sort of only in isolated centers, more frequently in, play, in Germany actually than, than, than in UK. In terms of systemic therapy, chemotherapy is used been quite frequently in the past, but response rates are very low and it's never been shown to improve um, survival. We then moved on to immunotherapy based both mainly on the outcomes in skin melanoma, which were really good. But the likelihood of response to uh, the checkpoint inhibitors is only like 5 to 8% for single agent and depending on studies, 12 to 18% for combination with one-year survivals, the rate of 52 to 56%. So still marginal changes at best. And that's really, you know, where we stand today pre-Tabentafusp, which we'll talk about more 
Thank you very much. I think a very important message is uval melanoma is not skin melanoma. So all these sort of exciting developments in skin melanoma over the past decade that the patient expects to work in the uval melanoma, they don't apply. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, I think it has been a, a big, I don't know, pitfall that people have considered um, uveal melanoma to be very similar to cutaneous melanoma, whereas in actual fact, they behave very differently and it's a distinct entity. I, I mean, I think of it not as a subtype of, of melanoma, but as a, a type of melanoma. It is distinct enough, much as squamous cell carcinoma from different organs in the body are different. And we know it's not driven by BRAF or by NRAS, which are the prime drivers of cutaneous melanoma. And as already mentioned, you know, chalk and cheese when it comes to mutational burden, very high levels in cutaneous melanoma and hardly any in uveal melanoma. So, Joe, we are witnessing a, an exciting new phase of this. And you've been involved in the clinical trials from the beginning. Let us know, share with us what the new exciting development is. It is a really a pleasure and a big landmark to be getting to this stage. So tibentafusp is, is a very smart molecule. It's been devised so that one end of it can target a protein called GP100 that's expressed in melanocytes and melanoma cells and consistently within uveal melanoma. On the other end of it is, is an anti-CD3, which binds to the T cells. So we have one end that recognizes the tumor cell, the melanoma cell, and the other side that recognizes a T cell. And this overcomes a lack of specificity of the T cells. So we can take any T cell in the body, in theory, a flu, um, one that recognizes flu, for example, and we drag them into the tumor. And then when they attach to the tumor cells, they then degranulate and do their business and kill, kill the melanoma cell. So it, it's really been a, it's a really neat concept. And in the early study, which included both cutaneous and uveal melanoma, they showed that there were a couple of patients who had good responses with uveal melanoma. And this led to, to kind of wanting to investigate this further. And there have been two major uveal melanoma focus studies. The first one was um, the 102 study, which both established a dosing regimen for uh, tibentafusp. And then the second, which was a randomized study, um, which looked at tibentafusp versus investigator's choice. And sorry, I meant to also say within 102, there was, um, it was looking also at the efficacy in an expanded population. So 102 um, looked at patients who had been pre-treated with various agents, and 202 was randomized in um, patients who hadn't been previously treated. In, in 102 study, um, 127 patients were recruited. It was a single arm study, so there were no comparators in this. The response rate itself was quite disappointing at only 5%. However, um, what we did observe was that there was an encouraging survival with a one-year overall survival of over 60%. And this is in comparison to um, historical data in this pre-treated population where the one-year overall survival was 37%. Um, this is in a meta-analysis done by Terry Cavella and his group. And that really gave us um, confidence that this molecule was improving outcome. But within the, the 202 study, this then was a randomized um, study where we compared tibentafusp versus investigator's choice of therapy. And in this study, um, there were 
a very large study for for uveal melanoma with 378 patients randomized, which is really unprecedented. Um, two to one to tibentafusp versus uh, investigator's choice. The hazard ratio for this was 0.51, so a very strong signal, uh, well, very strong um, supporting survival benefit with 21.7 median overall survival for uh, tibentafusp compared to 16 months with investigator's choice and a one-year survival of 73% versus 58.5% for the investigator's choice. There are quite some common side effects which relate to the skin toxicity due to targeting of melanocytes in the skin, but also sometimes due to release of cytokines, which occurs on activation of T cells. And most patients do develop some side effects, but these are generally mild to moderate and reduce significantly in severity and likelihood over the first month of treatment. We do need close monitoring of the first three to four doses, and um, the patients may need fluid support and sometimes steroids or other medications to support. But the side effects are not self-propagating, so they do resolve over a matter of hours usually. And overall, we feel that the, the drug is well tolerated. And uh, just to um, summarize for our audience again, what are the primary outcomes for the treated group versus the control group? So the main outcome here was in overall survival with an improvement from 16 months for the investigator's choice arm. And this was mostly immunotherapy like pembrolizumab. And, and that was improved to 21.7 months for tibentafusp. And when you look at the one-year survival in particular, this was 73% for the tibentafusp versus 58.5% for investigator's choice. So we, we are looking at something that is lengthening survival, not curing treatment, but it does have a significant impact in, in that regard. And as far as I understand, it doesn't work the same in everyone depending on your HLA status. Can you comment on that? So the drug has been designed to recognize the GP100 when bound to HLA AO201. So this is uh, an HLA subtype of which about 40 to 50 percent incidence within um, the European population. And if that isn't present, unfortunately, tibentafusp won't work at all. So the first part of screening is, is to identify whether patients have this HLA uh, subtype. And how many patients would that be? Well, about 40 to 50 percent of the population as a whole. Okay, so before you can enter any type of treatment that is a precondition, there's no discussion about that and you can't get around it. Is that correct? Yes, unfortunately, it is, it's a hard and fast rule because the tibentafusp only can recognize this GP100 win on, on HLA-AO201. And if you don't have that HLA type, the drug is completely ineffective. We would obviously like to have a, a situation where the other HLA types are um, also represented, but at the moment, these, these have not been clinically tested. And um, last question from your clinical perspective. It has been approved by FDA, by EMA. When do we get it? Or do you have patients already in your clinic normally treated like this? What's the funding process? Can you comment on that? Uh, absolutely. So, the EMA is, I think, almost approved. They've got CHMP, so that it, I think that is a very promising um, step, and it should hopefully be uh, through in the next few weeks. But it's it's still not completely all the way there. 
and now within UK, we we will have a separate licensing um, approval, and similarly in Australia as well. But but we are hopeful that that will go through relatively fast. Then in the UK, at least, we will have um, a review by our NICE um, Institute, which is um, National Institute for Health and um, Clinical Hair, um, Excellence. And this will approve it, um, I, I would hope, on the basis of both of benefit and cost effectiveness. But that will be required before we can access it on the NHS. In the meantime, internationally, Immunicore have funded an expanded access program through which many people are accessing the drug already. It is open in the UK, but it is dependent from centre to centre whether it's actually approved in the site. And, and we are almost there in Clatterbridge, but not quite. There are a couple of other centres in the UK which are treating, and most centres, I think, across Europe as well. Well, thank you very much. That That's so exciting. Thank you for really for your work on it and sharing these uh, news with us. Jens, uh, back to you. That is obviously fantastic news, but that will probably be a game changer for screening as well. I mean, so far, one of the conditions of screening is that uh, it has to make a difference. So when I pick up a disease earlier, that earlier must make a difference to wait until the patient develops symptoms. Now, Joe touched on it before as well. I, in my beginning of my training, learned that uval melanoma patients develop symptoms within a couple of weeks once it's detectable, but it seems to be detectable by screening much earlier. How do you do that in, in Denmark? How is your screening process? Well, uh, from a clinical point of view, I disagree strongly with these patients having symptoms. Basically, they are asymptomatic up until a few months before they actually develop a truly uh, liver failure and they will become uh, yellow and they will have a skin rash on the, on the skin. Uh, and then they will eventually die. So it's very important to follow these patients with regular screenings because they have no symptoms. So we follow them every six months with the ultrasound of the liver because the sensitivity and specificity of ultrasound with a good ultrasonographer is the same as you can obtain with uh, MR scans of the liver, just to detect liver metastases or not. If you want to detect how many liver metastases they have, then MR scans is superior to ultrasound. What's interesting in a recent Finnish study is that CT scan is actually inferior to ultrasonography of the liver. And uh, do you vary your screening depending on the risk factors that Meta described beforehand? Does it have an influence on your screening protocol? Yes, definitely, because if the primary uh, tumor doesn't contain any copy number alterations or any uh, chromosomal changes of chromosome 3 and chromosome 8, the risk of developing metastases are close to zero. So in the Danish healthcare system, we tend to spend the money on the ones that need it. And these are the ones with alterations in copy number variations and not the one with normal chromosomes. So only patients with abnormal chromosomes are screened in Denmark. And for how long do you do the screening? Do you stop after five or six years or...? What's your comment? So according to the health authorities, we need to follow these patients for 10 years. But mm -hmm. now as we get more and more information on the chromosomal changes and late metastasis, especially in the cases with SF3B1 mutations, we now follow them yeah, until they uh, get metastasis. 
Okay, a quick comment from Joe. How is it in the UK? How long do you see your high-risk patients uh, with uh, what type of screening? So I think it's very interesting. Um, I'm sure Jens will agree that there's nothing that generates as much controversy as a debate on, on screening practice internationally. Everybody does things uh, slightly differently. I mean, we we use MRI regularly um, instead of ultrasonography, but I you know I, I agree for the purposes of screening that either of these is a good approach, but and better than CT scan. Partly the sensitivity is better, but also obviously you're not exposing to to radiation. We similarly would do with six monthly um, restrict um, surveillance to those people with a high risk because you know it's a they are the ones who will likely benefit from it. And it is also use of resources that we can justify locally as well. We pers- we do it till five years every six months and then annually thereafter for another five years. I think it's another open question. The problem, I think, is late metastatic disease. It becomes very low likelihood of picking up on an individual scan. So, you know, you can screen for a very long time with a small number of metastases. And also often patients who develop metastases late develop atypical patterns of metastases, which can be lung, for example, skin and so on. So you don't always pick them up with liver surveillance, but there is definitely a debate to be had. And one of the things that we're involved in is an international registry, a uveal melanoma registry, um, with colleagues in the US, Rich Carvajal at Columbia and Anthony Joshua in Australia. And we're trying to build this up, but um, it's underway. But one of the key questions that we hope is by looking at outcomes and and practices in, in diverse situations, we will be able to really to see what the, you know, whether these how this impacts on survival. Um, because everybody does things differently. And if we can actually get sufficient numbers, we can start answering these questions as well. Trials in a situation like this are almost impossible to run because it takes so long and it, you know, it's a lot of resource to, to gain that answer. Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, one of the problems with screening is that you have a lot of so-called false positives. So you pick up things in the liver that are cystic, but nothing really... Um, to do have nothing to do with the metastatic disease. But on the other hand, um, these patients are also at risk of developing other primary tumors. I'd like to bring Meta back into uh, the conversation here. You looked into that in, in great detail. Can you tell us about it? Yes, thank you, Heinrich. Uh, we were inspired to look at this because we observed that in the clinic, uh, a lot of our patients had other uh, primary tumors or developed other primary tumors, tumors during follow-up. But as the median age at diagnosis is 64 years, then this is an older patient group. So we wanted to investigate if this was due to, to age or if uh, patients with ewell melanoma actually has a higher uh, risk of developing new primary cancer. So what we did was that we used the registries in Denmark to extract a background population that was matched on uh, age and, and gender. And then we we did an analysis, including also uh, socioeconomic uh, factors. And and what we found was that that there was actually a 21% higher incidence of uh, new primary cancer among the patients and uh, the patients with ewell melanoma. And it was independent 
of uh, socioeconomic static uh, state status. Uh, sorry. So this tells us that it might be some um, genetic background uh, for this. And you found, um, Jens said it before, an increase in the incidence overall of uvular melanoma. Is that somehow connected or, or how can you explain that? Uh, yes, that is a good question. Um, it's not, I mean, we did not find any uh, change in the pattern of which new primary cancers were detected. So uh, if we compare the, the control group with the our patients, then they had the same frequency of the different types of cancer. Uh, so therefore, we don't think that, that that it is connected. Well, thank you very much, Meta. Just sort of for the last round of questions, Joe, um, you usually, when you go to conferences, you probably see what's around the corner that we have no idea about. So two questions for you. Is there anything as exciting or more exciting around the corner for us? And uh, number two, what about neoadjuvant treatment? Jens said we already can identify the people at risks pretty well. Uh, wouldn't it be an idea to pre-treat them with, with this drug? Both great questions. So I, I think the first thing to say is that the Tebentafusp data have hopefully opened this up. They've given us the first sort of sign of hope. But it is still a subpopulation and it's not a cure for, for this cancer. So there's a lot of a lot of work that still needs to be done. I think the next thing that I'm looking forward to is the results of the focus study for Delcath with the percutaneous hepatic perfusion with melphalan. The response rate is is good. And, you know, I think in series it shows an, a survival advantage. So I'm hopeful that's going to be positive as well. And hopefully that will then push our regulatory authorities and our funding bodies to provide this uh, more widely. We know that there's a lot of interest in the PKC inhibitors with IDEA and Novartis involved in this space. And hopefully that, you know, there's been a phase one study that looked promising alone and in combination. So hopefully that will, that will bear fruit. There's also a lot of other um, targeted therapies underway and they've developed GNAQ and GNA11 inhibitors, uh, which as direct inhibitors may do better than some of the drugs that we've looked at previously, that is, MEK inhibitors, which, which really act downstream and so not directly on the mutation itself. I would hope that some of the other immunotherapy agents that are in, in, under investigation may come, uh, come out as well. There are lots of uh, other checkpoint inhibitors that are under investigation uh, and that they may, they may come to play. We also know that adoptive T-cell therapy can have some benefit but we've only got one small study so far. Hopefully that will be, you know, replicated elsewhere. I, there are lots of things. And I, I'm, I, we're, we're, we're involved in a phase one study of an oncolytic virus from, um, called, sorry, from Replimune. And that includes a cohort of patients with uveal melanoma. So, you know, I'm, hopefully we'll wait and see whether that shows benefit. What's going to be really challenging and important is that as a community, We take these ideas and these, you know, evidence of benefit and work collaboratively so we can do the studies that show whether the, the treatments work early or don't. And then we can move on because otherwise, you know, in the stage where you, you, I think we have been in the past with lots of phase one studies and phase two, but no clear understanding of what works and what doesn't. But to go to your other question, 
regarding adjuvant treatment. I mean, I think that this is very much a clear area where Tibentafas can show benefit. And this is is on the radar for the for the company and and so on. And I'm sure there will be activity in this area, but you know, we'll we'll need to see how it all works out. And that will take many years, unfortunately, to to get there. Well, thank you so much. That was great. Perhaps Jens, you can wrap it up. What will change for us ophthalmologists and ocular oncologists with this new information? Yeah, it's really interesting times. So being in this subject for many years, it's really encouraging that for the first time we actually have some new drugs that seems to work for our patients. So we will not continue to be the underdogs that never do anything except examine our patients. Hopefully we can treat them. Hopefully we can save our patients in the future. So. It's really a bright future, I think. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much to all of our, our participants. Um, it's always great to hear about positive results from new drugs, particularly in cancers that have such serious prognoses. So um, thank you very much for your time today, uh, Dr. Joseph Sacco, Dr. Meta Bagger, and our chairs, Professor Heinrich Hyman um, and Professor Jens Kielgegaard. Before we go, I just wanted to let you know about an upcoming case club, this time coming from Israel and hosted by Professor Anat Lowenstein. You'll want to join us to see five intriguing cases with an expert panel discussing each. It's a great way to encounter different diseases and hear about the challenges, but also to see how people approach them in practice. And the expert panel offer a different dimension in their commentary, making it a really useful educational event. That's the next Uretina Case Club from Israel, hosted by Professor Anat Lowenstein on March 24th at 8pm CET. Check the Uretina website for registration details. And as I say, registration is free, but the recording is only available for one week after that for non-members. So while you register for the webinar, why not check out the membership area and learn more about the great benefits of Uretina membership. And that's it from us on this week's Talking Uretina podcast. We'll see you next time.